It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. If more than anything you want love, then I, Emmanuel, will teach you to love with all the freedom of a man and all the imagination of a woman. I will show you how to awaken the mysteries of love hidden in all of us. You will be liberated and will say with me, nothing is wrong if it feels good. Paramount Pictures presents the all-new Emmanuel, the joys of a woman. Rated X, no one under 17 admitted. Hey folks, welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. On this episode, I'm talking with Jeremy Ritchie. We had him on the show about five years ago when we were talking about LaMarge. He was working on a book about Sylvia Christelle at that time, and now he's done with it. It is available at all finer bookstores, including cultepics.com and sylviachristel.org. That's S-Y-L-V-I-A-K-R-I-S-T-E-L.org. Check it out. Buy the book, and I hope you enjoy the interview. Can you tell me a little bit about yourself and really how you decided to write this book? I've been writing online for about, I guess, a bit over 15 years now. I started a blog, Cold Moon in the Gutter, back in the mid-2000s, as well as a Jean Roland tribute blog. That kind of led me to publishing a couple of different magazines. And uh, as far as the book goes, I mean, I've had the book in mind since the late 90s, and I've really been working on it the past you know, five years. The last time we talked was at least four years ago, I think. So yeah, I've been working on it for quite a while. So yeah, I'm, I'm glad it's finally out for everyone to, to hopefully enjoy. So why Sylvia Christel? Why spend so much time working on a book about her? Well, she's been one of my favorite actresses for a very long time. And uh, I just thought that she was just such an undervalued figure in film history to the point where, you know, Typically, she might just be mentioned in a paragraph or so, and usually just centered around Emmanuel. And her career was so much more varied than that on screen and off. You know, a lot of it was anger because I just felt like this, you know, person had been uh, kind of unfairly written out of film history. And I wanted to try to do my part to uh, reclaim that for her a bit. When was the first time you remember seeing her? And when did she really make a, an impression upon you? 
Well, I actually remember the first time I saw her was as a kid in the early 80s. It was in a Frankfurt, Kentucky bookstore, and I came across a book called Screen Goddesses. And uh, there was a photograph of her inside there, and it really, really struck me. Even from a really early age, I would have been just around, I guess, nine or ten at the time. And then I began to properly discover her films more in my late teens and the late 80s. And it was really seeing LaMarge in the mid-90s that made her become this kind of like... I just felt like I had uncovered this kind of secret treasure that nobody seemed to know about. It was just extremely exciting. And I just felt a real kinship with her on screen and off before I you know, found out about her. And uh, yeah, so it's it's been kind of a lifelong interest of mine. You mentioned Emmanuel. Why is that the film that so many people know her from? And why was that such a big phenomenon? Well, as far as like European audiences go, I mean, it needs to be you know, remember that Emmanuel was the biggest French film of the 70s. I mean, it was absolutely massive. It played in the same theater for nearly 15 years. It broke the box office record that West Side Story had set. So as far as Europe goes, this was like one of the biggest films of the decade. I mean, that, that reason alone meant that it kind of followed her around throughout Europe. And then as far as America goes, she got kind of this, I guess, sort of infamous reputation because of it, because that's all that Americans had seen at that point, were the Emmanuel films, and that's pretty much all they knew her from. So when she finally tried to come to, or came to America in the late 70s, it was just Emmanuel, 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 because, you know, American audiences had no idea about her work with people like Claude Chabrol or Brofchek, Elaine Rodegrelet, or even Roger Vadim. They just did, they just weren't aware of it. So it was kind of two different stories, depending on what part of the world you were in. But, but Emmanuel, the film was just so massive in so many different ways that it was just a character that she could never fully escape from. Where did Emmanuel fall in her filmography? Was this early in her career or had she already made those other films you mentioned? She had made three Dutch films before Emmanuel, Frank and Eva, because of the catch, which was a Dutch co-production, and then Make It Over the Fence. And from that point, she went to France where she made, and she made Emmanuel first, but it hadn't come out yet. And then she made Julius, these, and then No Pockets and a Shroud. Jean-Pierre Maki as well. So all three of those films were made kind of here simultaneously. You know, when she made Julia and No Pockets in a Shroud again, nobody had any clue just how big of a star she was going to become literally overnight when Emmanuel came out. Uh, but yeah, she had already had three, four films, you know, to her credit by the time Emmanuel appeared. Why was Emmanuel such a big hit? Well, first of all, it's a, it's a beautiful film. It's an incredibly well-made film, especially for its budget. Shushakin's an extremely underrated filmmaker. And then I mean, just as far as the photography, the cinematography, the location, it's just an absolutely stunning-looking film. You know, and it was also, it was a time of the rise of the fem- feminist movement and also the sexual revolution. And it was a time when, uh, you know, more explicit content could be seen in cinemas. And even though Emmanuel was decidedly softcore, it still kind of rode that porno chic wave that would come in the mid seventies. So much so when you when you read a lot of the, especially English English language materials from the period, Emmanuel was often lumped in with Deep Throat because they came out around the same time. Emmanuel a bit afterwards, but the films really have nothing in common, and Sylvia had really no connection at all to the hardcore film industry. Yeah, I just think it was. For a number of reasons, it was just kind of a perfect time for it. And also in France, the book Emmanuel had been this kind of like sensational underground literary classic. French audiences especially were really primed for the film because it was 
kind of like candy here in the United States where, you know, the film that couldn't be made or the book that couldn't be made into a film, that was Emmanuel. So once it was, you know, the audiences just flocked to it in France. I mean, it, it became a, just an actual tourist attraction, just the marquee itself. How soon after the first one did they say, we have to make this a franchise? When she signed on for the first one, she signed a contract that, you know, if the film had been successful, she was signed on contractually for two more films in the series. She wasn't enthused about making either one of those. I mean, she wanted to leave the character behind with the first film. She enjoyed her time on the second film with uh, Gia Capetti as the director. It's my favorite of the series, and I think she's really incredible in it. And then by the time that the third film came around, you know, at that point, she had already worked with you know, some of the best directors in Europe, and she was really wanting to be done with the character. But because she was contractually obliged, she had to make those three films. And then by the time the 80s rolled around, and she ended up having a lot of financial difficulties, along with a number of other personal difficulties, that's the reason that she made Emmanuel 4, and then finally the, the television movies in the late 80s, early 90s. It was really at that point just the financial issue. But I think if she could have had her way, it would have just been that first film, and then she would have went on with her career. But you know how it goes. It's the whole, it's the whole Roy Scheider, Jaws 2 uh, kind of thing. What is your favorite performance from her? Lamarge is the one that means the most to me. That was the one that really just struck me as being like I discovered the Marlena Dietrich of the 70s. I mean, it was just this, it's just the really mind-blowing, intensely poetic and dark, uh, ghostly performance that I've never seen anything quite like it. Right there with that is Sheperl's Alice, which she made right around the same time. And that's nearly a silent film, which was perfect for her because she was wonderfully adept at communicating without dialogue. I mean, that was kind of what she was best at. Lamarge and Alice are the two big, big major performances of her career, I think. But also there are films like Renee Lacan, which isn't very well known, really known at all here in the United States that she made with Depardieu. She's absolutely brilliant in that. It's just hysterically funny. And then some of her Dutch work as well, a film like Mysteries that she made with Rutger Hauer. And there are just all of, the, all of these richly nuanced performances that are nothing like each other. And that's one thing that's super impressive about her now, especially with the video age where you're able to watch you know, films in succession. You can see the growth from those early Dutch films up to Alice, which was just a period of three or four years. But the, like, the growth was just unbelievable, especially for a completely untrained and totally instinctual actress, which is what she was. How easy or difficult was it to find all of these movies while you're writing about them? A number of them I already had in my collection. My incredible publisher, Cult Epics, had already released her first Dutch film, Frank and Eva, and then a box set of her films came about from Cult Epics, kind of to coincide with the book that included four more of her Films from the period that are in the book. There were a handful that were much more difficult to find than others, like Love on the Train, an Italian comedy she made in the late 70s, is, is difficult to find. Renee Lacan, which I mentioned earlier, No Pockets in a Shroud. I mean, these are ones that you, and even Lamarge and Alice, I mean, you have to go to the gray market basically to find them. I mean, they're not officially available right now, which is frustrating because they're, you know, some of her best films are in that category. With the internet, it wasn't too difficult to find the films. There were a couple, like Love and First Class for Nato Khan, that I had to, didn't have English subtitle options. So I'm still waiting to see those uh, English friendly versions of those, which will hopefully happen eventually. But yeah, most of the films I already had in my collection as far as what the book covers. And the book covers from her first film in 73 up until 
Lady Chatterley's Lover uh, in the early '80s, and then the kind of the postscript is the or the films after. But I don't I don't delve deeply into the post Lady Chatterley's Lovers film, which is remarkable because the book is anything but small. But at the same time, you have so many gorgeous pictures and poster images in there. I mean, just to find and collect all of those for one volume must have been quite a job. You know, I cannot stress enough how amazing my publisher, Nico at Cult Epics is. I mean, because he was the one in charge of designing the book. And I mean, I did help with some of the images and, and tracking some down. And, and But most of that was all him as far as the design of the book went. And so I, I just owe him everything. Like to have my first book be not only published, but to have it be like a seven pound coffee table, hardcover, full color, dust jacket. I mean, the whole, the whole bit is just amazing for such a, because when you actually hold the physical book, I mean, it's a, it's, it's kind of a beast. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's a, it's a really big book, but, but yeah, as far as the images go, he worked for well over a year on compiling all the images, getting them restored. I mean, when you open the book, you're going to find dozens upon dozens of lobby cards, posters, rare photographs. Yeah. And that's mostly all Nico. Again, I, Helped as much as I could, and I had some from my own collection. We both dealt with some of the same sellers on eBay and Europe. Some we drove one guy in France crazy, I think, to the point where he finally sent us a couple of free posters. I think just to get us to get off his back. <laughs> <laughs> but as far as the, the design of the book and the, the look and the actual physical book itself, I mean, my publisher is just is astonishing. So, how did you go about researching all this? Well, it was a years long process. When I initially, you know, when we initially spoke, I think that was around. 2017 or so, maybe 2018. I know it was a long time ago because I was still married, but I had re- I'd started researching the book at that point, and I had already done a few of the interviews at that point as well. And then I got divorced, and kind of that kind of you know personally threw me off offline for a little while. And then I think around 2020 is when I really picked up really heavily researching the book again. It was about a two-year process of researching. I found over 4,000 articles, vintage articles that I had to sift through. And, you know, a lot of them were, you know, in Dutch, some in French. And it was a super enjoy. I mean, I like, I love researching. I love that kind of work. So COVID was kind of the worst time in all of our lives, but it gave me the opportunity to have like all the time in the world to, to do the research and to really buckle down and get the thing written. It kind of come in two steps, that, that initial burst first spoke and then a couple of year, few years after it. It was fun, but but yeah, super. I literally crashed a computer <laughs> with all of the information that I compiled. I hope you didn't lose anything. No, I didn't. I had to rebuild some of the bibliography and refine some of the sources and that kind of stuff. But luck I didn't lose any of my writing and I didn't lose any of the like actual material that I'd gathered. I'd had that all backed up. It was just some documents that I had to rebuild, basically. What was the most interesting thing that you found while you were researching? When I initially started the research, I was kind of, because initially I was just looking at English language material, and I was kind of freaked out because I was like, I don't know how I'm going to write this book about the period I want to write it in, because the English language material typically just focused on Emmanuel or the disappointing work that she did in the late 70s, early 80s. And that's not what I, I wanted the focus to be on the European films, mostly from the 70s. I was kind of nervous, and it wasn't until that I was able to access the, the just the literal mountain load of Dutch material that I was like, okay, this is this is very doable because there's a lot more material than I know of. And then finding various you know video interviews with her and so forth, 
As far as most exciting thing, all of the interviews I found with her, I mean, it was it was really remarkable getting, to, especially the Dutch interviews that had never been translated in English. And she talked to the press a lot, and she gave a lot of lengthy, you know, very personal interviews and very, you know, straightforward and honest, funny. So I felt a real kinship with that. As far as like an article that really blew my mind, one that I found from 1972 detailed how she was basically discovered by Jacques Charrier, and I'm probably mispronouncing his name, and I apologize, but he was known for being one of Brigitte Bardot's most publicized partners. And he discovered Sylvia in the Netherlands, and he was the one that initially suggested that she go to France and have her first film auditions, which she didn't end up getting a role in that period, and she went back to the Netherlands, and that's how she started with Scorpio Films. But it was that she had mentioned it in passing in her memoirs, but to read like the full report of it was really, really fascinating because she was totally unknown, 19-year-old young woman who had never dreamed that this could be a possibility for her. And to have that kind of confidence booster that early on was really, you know, unique. And then finding out, you know, how integral Nicholas Ray was, her casting as Emmanuel. And then, I mean, there literally, it was just like every day with research, I would find something and I'd be like, oh my God, that's amazing. That's so cool. And then also all of the unmade films, just the roles that she turned down, the films that were never made, all of that was super fascinating to discover. And a lot of it was regretful. Yeah. I mean, there was just literally every day with the research, I was just, you know, blown away by one thing after another because she just had such a an incredibly diverse life surrounded by amazing artists. And I mean, she was just so much more than Emmanuel. I cannot stress that enough. So you're right. It was just about five years ago that we spoke. And at the time, there wasn't really a good version, good complete version of Lamarge out there. Is that still the case? Yeah, that's still the case. It's still only on gray market, unless there's been some random DVD someplace in the world that I'm not aware of. But uh, Lamarge and Alice, which ironically are her two best films, they're the two films that she was the most proud of as well. Those are the two hardest to find. And it's insane because it's Barofchek and Claude Chabrol. Every uh, few months when Criterion announces their uh, releases, I'm always, why aren't these films making it? I just, it's, it's baffling to me. Lamarge might have something to do. I've always wondered if it has anything to do with the soundtrack because, you know, it has Pink Floyd. At CC, I mean, Elton John, I mean, it's, where's Alice? I, I, I honestly have no idea. I do not know why Alice isn't available. People like Chevrolet and Barofchik are like gods to me. So I, I, it's such a bummer how film history is treated and how many films just are not available. I so wish that it was more like the music streaming services where you could go and just access a hundred years worth of recorded music on any of these subscription platforms. And not everything is there, but a lot of it is from all over the world. But movies, films just aren't, aren't like that. It's, it's, it's frustrating. So there's several ways that people can pick up your book, including ways where they can also buy DVDs with it. Can you tell me a little bit about the films that come with the book in that certain package? If you order directly from Cult Epics, there's a few different versions you could get. You can get the book with an exclusive dust jacket, or you can get a, a box set with the book and the DVD Blu-ray set, either a DVD set or a Blu-ray set, I should say. And the, the four films in that are uh, Rope Relays, Playing With Fire, Julia, which was the, uh, the German co-production exploitation film that I mentioned earlier, uh, and then two of the later Dutch films that she made in the late 70s, Mysteries, 
and Festival 1943, both of which also feature Rutger Hauer. And all four of the films, with the exception of, well, Mysteries and Julia, she has major roles, but Festival 1943 and Playing with Fire, she has a very small role in each. But it's important to show that she was very comfortable doing either starring or supporting roles throughout her career. She had no problem with either. In fact, she did Festival 1943 absolutely free just because she believed in the project. So I, I was absolutely thrilled to play a part and have the book play a part and having these films you know, released in HD here because outside of Julia, none of, well, I should say Julia and Mysteries had been available on kind of, you know, VHS sourced sort of legit DVDs here, never in HD and never uncut. And then Playing with Fire and Festival 1943 had never been released on home video here in the United States. It was great, especially with the Rogue Relay film that Nico, my publisher, got Tim Lucas to do the commentary on that which was terrific because he had done the other Rogue Grille commentaries a few years back when Kino released them, or Redemption, I guess it's Kino Redemption. So I was super glad that Tim got to, to do another Rogue Grille title, and then I got to do a couple of commentaries for Mysteries and Julia. And then we have a Dutch historian, Peter Verstraat, who did uh, also Mysteries and Festival 1943 commentaries as well. And also the discs have Vintage footage, vintage interviews with Sylvia Rucker-Hauer, behind-the-scenes footage, new interviews, soundtracks. I mean, it's it's a, it's a terrific set. There's a booklet, poster. It's a really, really nice set. And I'm just super happy. I mean, I, obviously, I hope people you know, like my book and like my writing and, and all of that. But I'm, just, I'm so thrilled that I you know, can play a part. And, and having some of these films get released here, that was that was really exciting. Or is, is really exciting. It might be a little too soon to tell, but how does it feel to have really helped correct the record and tried to cast Christelle in a new light that she's not just the Emmanuel girl? You know, I'm in a constant state of anxiety in general, <laughs> and especially right now. I mean, I'm you know, this is my first book, and you want to take criticism as best you can, but at the same time, I mean, it's it's difficult. I want it to be well received and well liked, uh, just on a purely selfish level as a writer. But the main thing really is just getting her name and career more recognized. I know that, that this is helping to do that. And then also they just announced that there's going to be a remake of Emmanuel with Mia Sado. And I love I love her and I'm probably mispronouncing her name too. I French names absolutely kill me. <laughs> that's that's gonna also, you know, I think hope maybe the original might even be streaming or eventually since that's happening. You know, there's a Netflix that's talked about making a possible miniseries about her life, you know, which I'm a little nervous about because I always feel like that, you know, a lot of people just want to focus on Emmanuel and that she was somehow or another taken advantage of by this industry. And that's that's actually not the case. I mean, if you read her story and if you read, it was much more of her time in Hollywood that really derailed her and the way that Hollywood treated her much more so than the European filmmakers that she'd worked with throughout the 70s. There's just a real tendency, I think, in, in the United States, states especially to, uh, you know, to demonize anybody who's done any type of erotica or even when it's soft core. I mean, there's just a certain kind of puritanical aspect of this culture that uh, they want to focus on that and they want to, I think, demean a person for it. So that I've been fighting against that as much as I can. I'm just going to keep trying to uh, explain to people that this was a really, really a fascinating film figure and artist. And I think the last great star of the, the kind of European art house. 
of of the seventies. I, I just think that there's something completely unique about her, or was unique about her. So you don't think that the nude bomb was the high water mark in world cinema? Well, it was a higher water mark than Concord Airport seventy nine. I can I can tell you that. I mean, the nude bomb is goofy and. I don't care much for it, but it, it does have its moments. I, I love the, I love the section in the Universal Studios Park. I mean, that's a lot of fun. And, you know, her couple of scenes are fun. Those American films that she made, it was, was literally the, the worst decisions that she could have made. And especially compared to the films that she had turned down just a few years before and then afterwards as well. It, she was kind of like Tuesday Weld in the 60s. She was in, in some ways her own worst enemy. I mean, as far as some of her decisions went as far as her career went i wish been the concord airport 79 that's all i can say that that was the absolute worst film that she could have picked to come to america with but it is what it is so so how about you what are you working on now you know even though i finished up the writing last year i'm still researching and i'm still finding new information and i'm right now just trying to concentrate on promoting the book and i'm building a new website sylviacristal.org which is kind of like an updating of the website I already had. Eventually, I hope to put all of those thousands of articles up online, easily accessible for people. You know, a lot of the other material that I've collected. I've got a few things in mind as far as like the next writing project goes, but, but right now I'm, I'm still kind of in a really burned out kind of stage. <laughs> and then also the just, you know, the political situation and the, I mean, everything the country's going through and the, I mean, the world and the environment. I mean, there's just a lot happening right now that contributes to my general anxiety <laughs> level. So I'm still trying to figure out what my next move is. But right now, I just I just want to keep moving forward with this. And also, I really fell in love with the Dutch film, especially Dutch film from the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Well, I'm not amazed by it because I didn't know a lot either. But I mean, it's just not discussed enough. And there's not enough of those films available, especially here in America. I don't think I'm through with Dutch film. I kind of want to step away from film in a lot of ways, but I'm very interested in the history of Dutch cinema, and I, I do want to uh, write more on that. Well, Jeremy, thank you so much for your time. It was great talking with you again, and I hope it doesn't have to be another five years before we have it back on. Yeah, I can't believe it's been that long, but, but yeah, I, told, I was in Colorado, and like I said, I was in a very different place in my life, so it has been a long time <laughs> Well, at least you've got a great book to show for it. Well, thank you, and thank you for... Uh, for reading it. I, I really appreciate that. I mean, that alone means a lot. I, re I really appreciate that.